Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, my next guest is somebody who I've interviewed many times through Formula One and have known for a number of years. He is a man who has never failed to give a positive, upbeat interview. Even if things hadn't gone well on track, his glass is absolutely always half full. I'm talking about Mr. Max Chilton. On this podcast, we discuss his karting days, his big break into the highest echelon of single-seater motorsport. We talk about his teammates, most poignantly, Jules Bianchi. We talk about his move to America and his quest to win the Indy 500 and just how close he got to doing just that fairly recently. We also welcome Chloe, his gorgeous wife, onto the podcast, his ever-present sidekick, who also has her own blossoming career. So, without further ado, please welcome... Mr. Max Chilton to In The Pink. Well, hello, Max. It's been a long time, far too long, but you're back in Blighty and it's great to have you on this podcast. How are you? I'm very well and thank you for having me. I've just, uh, as of yesterday, finished 10 days of quarantining, which was uh, a challenge in itself. I'm very thankful. I've got a garden and I can sort of get out, get some fresh air, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's difficult. I I came back from my first pre-season testing um and then you can do this test release scheme after five days yes uh, i did and it was negative but within the same hour of testing negative i got testing traced by someone that had done the same on the flight and tested positive so then i had to do another full five days to do the 10 days before i could leave the house so that was a bit of a challenge um, well, hang on so you okay so you did that because there was someone else on your flight who tested positive not because you ever tested positive no so basically yeah after five days you can you can uh, halve your quarantine period if you yeah. test which I tested negative but that result is void if you get tested and traced by someone on the flight that tests positive because you've been around someone within the last five days that's tested positive so even though I knew I was negative I still had to do the full period which was a was a challenge but hey it's 2021. I mean and that's the weird bit about all of this isn't it is that we were all looking at 2021 as being you know everything changes with the new year 2020 is behind us it sort of feels harder, I think, at the moment because it's colder, you know, longer, uh, longer nights, shorter days. Um, anyway, the whole point of this podcast is to be upbeat and not to whinge, not to moan, and to help those listening to uh, find a way out of uh, and a bit of escapism. So, 
we're definitely not going to whinge. But it, it hasn't been easy, in fairness, to you and Chloe, your lovely wife. I mean, uh, you came back from America from the first lockdown and she lost her father. So, I mean, it's it's been a hell of a year, 2020, for you guys, hasn't it? Yeah, it was a it was a, a very horrible month, March. We had literally just got back um, from our first race being cancelled, and the whole world going into absolute meltdown. I remember that I'll never forget that week because everything just changed. Every sport, every country was closing down, and then within two days of getting back, close um, uh, father who I was very close to, unfortunately had a stroke. Um, so the start of lockdown was yeah, in and out of hospitals. Uh, and yeah, something we, we don't want to remember, but it was very difficult. He was an amazing, amazing man. He was yeah. more of a than I was. So, and I, I knew him from the age of uh, six. So I knew him my whole life and we always spoke about cars a lot. So yeah, it was a, it was a difficult year. We thought 2021 was going to be hopefully a bit more positive, but at the moment it's, it's dragging out a little bit. It will be. We're only just in February. Everything's going to get better. Only the worst month and that's been and gone now. So on to better exactly. things. Exactly. And you're on the podcast, so that's already made my February better. It's lovely to see you again. So um, let's cast our minds back because obviously most people listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube will know you from Formula One. Um, but let's just talk about your path to uh, the pinnacle of single-seater motorsport. Um, in, and it started with karting, as most young aspiring drivers do. And then um, T-cars, can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for having me on your podcast because I feel like a bit of an old man. I've, I've never done any of that parting, clubbing scene and I never did podcasts. I, I feel like podcasts have been around for about 10 years, but I've only literally this year got into them. But I'm now absolutely hooked on them and try and listen to all of them. They're so brilliant for learning things. So no, it's great. I'm, I'm a big fan of podcasts. So it's great to be on the, on yours. Um, yeah, my, my racing career, um, it started off, uh, I would say the same way as 95% of people in Formula One, where you started in go-karts. There's very few people that have got to Formula One by not starting in go-karts. It's where you learn your race craft. The thing I love about racing karts, it's the absolute purest form of racing. There's no downforce. There's very little power. So it's all about race craft and, you know, least line of resistance. And, and you can see someone's craft at the age of eight carried all the way through to the year that they, you know, retire from their career. I was always a very smooth um, uh, driver, not overly aggressive, but I would always somehow avoid the accidents, get some decent results. And, and when I need to be, be aggressive. And I'm still like that driver today. There's drivers which were so aggressive in carts, they got into car racing and it just didn't work because you can't be overly aggressive in car racing. So if you keep losing your front wing, you're, race, you're already out of the race. So it's it, the thing I love about it is you learn so much from that early stage. So I did that. I just started in the Kent Championship. I lived in Surrey, so I spent my weekends going down to Kent, racing all over Kent, um, which was amazing. And yeah, this, the weirdest thing is at the age of eight and nine, I'm, I'm still racing against some people that I was when we started karting. It's such a small world. Yeah. Um, but it's actually a really big industry. It's quite weird how you always come across the same people and drivers. So um, I got out of karting fairly early. I started uh, in a thing called T-car, as you mentioned, at the age of, um, I think I was 13 when I first started testing that. Um, my voice was very squeaky. Uh, <laughs> I definitely hadn't hit adolescence. I was about five foot tall, but I was testing a, a T-car at 125 miles an hour, way before I could even drive on the road. In fact, I even got into British F3. I was racing British F3 cars, which are crazily fast cars, before I even had a road license. 
So because you uh, were like 16 in F3, weren't you? Weren't you the youngest? Yeah, so I actually qualified at Donington Park on the last day of being 15 on the Saturday and then raced on my birthday on, it was, uh, I think it was Easter Sunday, um, April the 21st on the Sunday. Um, we had to get a special dispensation to be able to qualify being 15. But I'd already been testing the car for a whole year. Um, so it was weird driving these amazing racing cars, yet not even having a road license. But Motorsport has got younger. I remember getting to, uh, as you were uh, aware, I got to Melbourne in 2013, my first year in Formula One. Um, I was 21 years of age. I felt fairly young. I know Jensen got um, there in the Williams, at, I think he was 20. But at the time, that was fairly young. And then you go and get Max Verstappen, it goes and wins a race at the age of 18. It's just like a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah, so true. And just, just tell me what T-cars are, because I'm not even really sure. Okay. So T-Cars is like a touring car. You know what Jason oh, okay. my brother raced, the British touring cars. Yeah. It looks like a road car, um, but it's not a brand. It's, it was a custom-built race car, um, space frame chassis. So it wasn't a carbon monotop. They did it like still frame chassis just to keep the, the cost down. Um, and I had a Ford Duratec two-litre engine, but it was brilliant. It had little splitters on the front for a little bit of downforce and a rear wing. Um, but it taught me the art of healing towing because it was a manual box. I had to learn how to do that, which drivers of this day and age don't do. They leave carts, go straight into a single seater with flappy paddle gearbox. Um, so I, I thought it was an amazing craft um, and some great drivers have, have come from that. I raced against Julian uh, Palmer uh, the same year we did it. Um, my brother also did it. Uh, Ma uh, Malcolm Wilson or Matthew Wilson. He went on to race in WRC from it, learning all the healing toes. So, it was an amazing category. Um, and again, yeah, I was very young in it. And then in the last year of that, I started testing Formula 3 and, uh, and went up from there. So it's, uh, it was an amazing championship. The thing is with it, it just didn't last. Unfortunately, there was another championship called Ginetta Juniors. Yes. On the British Touring Car Bill. The cars were nowhere near as good, but because the budgets were slightly less, it took off. They had big grids. T-Cars grids got smaller. And then it became a point where they had to close the championship. But it was... It was an amazing car and championship when it was at its prime. And your brother still, is he still racing British touring cars? Yeah, so he's, um, he's last year went back to the British touring cars. He first started racing in British touring cars at the age of 17. Um, he was very young. I remember his first race at Brands Hatch. Um, he knocked off Tim Harvey, which didn't go down too well on the last lap to get a podium in his first ever race. So we've always done things young as a family. And he went on, I think, to do about 12 years in British touring cars before then going to world touring cars for three or four years. And now he's just reverted back to the British. So he's been doing touring car racing since I think that was 2003, something like that. So a big chunk of his life and my life, he's been racing touring cars. But he is an amazing touring car driver. He's got a skill which I don't have. I'm used to the high downforce cars. Um, I've always been built like a sort of jockey. He was built like a rugby player, so he suits the the, the touring car style of, of driving. And where do you get it from? Where's the passion come from? Because I know your dad's been a massive part of your career. Yeah. You know, w w was he kind of encouraging you to get into it? Yeah, so my, my father has always loved racing. Our Sundays as a kid, and I'm talking four, five, six, seven, before I even started karting, was sat down listening to Murray Walker going, and it's go, go, go. And you'd usually get the driver's names wrong, but it didn't matter. His voice commentating on, on Formula One was my childhood. Um, so I always had that passion. Um, never knew I was going to be a racing driver. Um, but there was an advert in the Autosport magazine my father used to um, read. 
and it was for the T-Car Championship, which I just mentioned. And it was when the first championship was that first year was starting, where it was uh, you could race a, a touring car at the age of 14. So my father took my brother down to do his arts test. So he got his race license and then he started racing T-Cars. But my brother really struggled with his weight. So he was 13 stone at 13, 14 stone at 14, 15 stone at 15, until he then realized he wanted to be a racing driver and started to lose weight. Um, so I spent about two years being a little teenager, not even a teenager, just a kid riding around the paddocks on a scooter wanting to have a go. So the only thing I could have a go at, at the age of eight was a go-kart. So I got into go-kart racing and that sort of led me on the path to Formula One. And that's, that's how it all came about. But my father's always had a passion for racing. My grandfather loved his cars. Um, and, you know, luckily my father's worked really hard and done really well for himself. So he's, he's been able to buy the, the cars on the road, which give you the passion and the noise and the speed, which I think just we sort of inherited. And it's, it's been there ever since. But before I even thought I was going to be a racing driver, I wanted to be a greenskeeper originally at a golf course because I was I was addicted to all the like different contraptions you could have on the on the lawnmowers and all that sort of stuff. Then I thought, oh, maybe we'll go bigger and better. I'll be a farmer because they they had like big combine harvesters. So yeah, originally didn't even think about racing until I was given the chance to get in a go kart, and then the, the rest is history. And your dad is a lovely, lovely man. I can vouch for that for no. sure. Uh, and. Your first sort of big break in terms of Formula One came in 2011 for the Young Drivers Test for Force India in Abu Dhabi. What are your memories of that moment when you got into the car for the first time? Um, yeah, it was a moment I'll never forget. The first time I actually got in the car was at Kemble, which is an airstrip in the Cotswolds, where I had to just do some straight line testing. And I remember putting my foot down for the first time. And considering I'd driven a GP2 car, which was fairly decent, nothing ever will come close to that feeling of thinking holy hell this is just madness it was it was going up the gears so quickly I was having to concentrate on just clicking the paddles it was that fast and acceleration and I remember thinking how on earth do you drive this around a racetrack like Monaco when it's scary enough on a mile long you know uh, airstrip in the Cotswolds but then a few months later I was in Abu Dhabi doing a young driver test and it all soon comes to you. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're driving a, you know, a touring car or you're driving a Formula One car, the principles are still the same. You, you make sure you've got enough traction, then you put your foot down, go through the gears and then brake in a straight line. So, you know, I, it all came into place. But the, the most magical feeling for that test in Abu Dhabi was sharing the track with Michael Schumacher. Because as I said earlier, listening to Murray Walker for so many years, it was all Michael. It was this red car winning. And he was my idol. I'd love to say Senna was my idol or... Jim Clark was my idol. They are sort of now, but at the time, I didn't know who they were. It was just Schumacher, and he always won. What do kids want to do? They win. So he was my idol growing up, and then I managed to go on track with him, and I remember him passing me in the – it wasn't the Bourne, it was the Mercedes. Mm. And I thought, wow, I'm actually on track with Michael Schumacher in an F1 car. It's something I never thought would, would happen. That's surreal, isn't it? Yeah. And when you did eventually uh, get the car – uh, to Monaco what did it feel like because I think that's the you know in layman's terms that's what everyone wants to know how on earth do you pull a, an F1 car around a track like Monaco and what does it feel like because there's very few of us that will ever do it um, it's relentless there's no no time for a break but weirdly the thing with Monaco it's obviously one you can never test that but I've actually done a lot of miles there um, because I when I was doing British F3 knew I was going on to do GP2 the following year we made the smart choice of doing a race in um, Renault World Series, Renault uh, 
And Jules Bianchi did the same. He was racing um, British, uh, no, he was doing European F3 at the time, same, same as me. And he knew he was going to do GP2. So we both did the Monaco Grand Prix in the World Series to learn the track. So we were ready for GP2. So I did a year of that in 2009, then three years of GP2 and then raced it twice in F1. So it's something I, I knew the track really well. I really enjoyed street circuits. And actually my last year in GP2 in 2012, I got a podium there. So it's an amazing place to, to stand on the podium. Um, I remember being stuck behind James Clardo after like lap two had a puncher and he, instead of coming in, just tried to go as long as he could. But you can't just get past. It's quite an easy track to defend. So within two laps, Jolien Palmer, who was leading, pulled a 12 and a half second gap. Then finally, I got past James and the rest of the race, I had to hunt down Jolien. And I came across the line half a second behind him. So I closed down the 12 second gap, but missed out on the victory. But it was amazing to stand on the podium in Monaco um, and then go on to race, race in there in F1 in 13 and 14. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, you do only need one car to be that cork in the bottle and it screws everybody else up for the rest of it. Yeah, it, James had, I could see it was like a visible puncher on his rear left, but you can be five seconds a lap slower there and it's pretty easy to defend. Now, obviously, I mean, my, my, my brain's sort of skipping around a bit here because you mentioned Jules and I had a flashback to, to when he scored Marussia's point in Monaco. Uh, what are your memories of that day? Um, it was an amazing day. Obviously, the, the whole team were going wild. And obviously, being the, the teammate, you've got to sort of put on a brave face and be really happy. And I was really happy for everyone because they've been doing it for so many years. But part of you, and this is just me being honest, is I, I wish that was me. And the annoying thing was, is I, it was one of the tracks that I could actually really compete against Jules. Some tracks, he was just in a league of his own. But there was, especially my second year in 2014, I actually started the pre-season quicker than him. And the start of the season, I was quicker than him. And in Monaco was the first one where that whole weekend, I just couldn't get within a few tenths of him. And it was actually a week later um, that John Booth called me on a Tuesday and apologised. And he was apologising on the phone. And I thought, oh, here we go. And anyway, they worked out that I had completely the wrong spring package on the car. And the year before in 13, I was actually really competitive against Jules at Monaco. But that year, 2014, I just couldn't seem to do anything. The car just wasn't handling correct. Um, so I never know what would have happened if I had the right spring package on that. I don't think I would have got the points because watching that race back, Jules just did an amazing job that race to, to get that car in the points around Monaco and the overtake to do it. I remember him lunging down the middle of the second to last corner and sort of barging his way through, you know, he fully deserved that point. And, you know, what we learned later on that year and what, you know, sadly happened to him, it was the best thing was him getting that point because, mm. you know, he, he died being a Formula One, uh, at least point scorer. Mm. And, and, you know, I know you guys were close. What, what are your kind of reflections on him as a teammate? Yeah, Jules was, the thing was, as I said earlier, motorsport's a really small um, group of people, and especially when you start off in a, it's like being starting school. You go through the school with the same sort of people around you. I started in carts a similar age to Jules. And we went through the karting. We were teammates in karts at the age of 12. Um, then we were teammates in F1. And that's sort of the same as Lewis and Nico. That, that's sort of how the journey, journey went through. So I was always aware of Jules. Um, we shared a podium together in British F3, I think, in Portugal. Um, and so we were always around each other. So I knew what his character was. And he was also the, 
you know, probably the most sought after young driver at the time. He was always the, the, the kid to be. So I knew as soon as he was my teammate, I had, I had some work to do. Um, but it was probably the best thing for me because that's something I've always done. I know I could have stayed down in British F3 the year I was year after I was teammates with Dan Ricardo and probably won it. I finished fourth when I was teammates with Dan, but we shared the same number of front row starts and pole positions as Dan. I just didn't get it quite together on the race starts. And I know I could have won the championship if I stayed back a year, but I always liked racing against the best. So I jumped up to GP2. My last year in GP2, I won two feature race wins and finished fourth. Again, if I stayed back a year, I probably won the, won, would have won the championship. I would have turned down a chance of getting into Formula One. So it's easy to look back and go if and how, but I reckon if I'd stayed back in GP2, I would have never got my opening into Formula One. So it is what it is. Um, I like racing against the, the best in the world and Jules, without doubt, was the best young driver, I think, in the Formula One at the, at the time. Um, and so that's why it was sad not to see him get his chance in Formula One. The weird thing for me is it was so long ago now, it was seven years ago. I've never met Charles Leclerc, but for me, watching Charles on TV, you interview Charles, it's like watching Jules. I can't see the difference in looks, character, the sound, and the way he drives, it's like Jules. It's like, it's just bizarre for me. And so I'd love to one day meet Charles because it is just, it's bizarre. I know, I've, I mean, I've just got goosebumps you saying that. And um, I did a shoot with um, Charles uh, about six months ago. And I, I kept calling him Jules. Mm. And I, I, I was so embarrassed at one point. And even when the cameras are off, we're just having some lunch. And I, and I called him Jules. And I said, I'm so sorry. And he was like, do you know what? Actually, I really like it. He said, it's the biggest compliment you could pay me. And I kind of welled up and I was like, you know, but everything about him. And of course, they were so close as well. You know, he, Jules was his godfather. Yeah, you know, I can't get my head around that because the age gap's yeah, not big enough. Yeah, the age gap's not big, but, it, you know, their dad's obviously close and, you know, the yeah. families are close and he was, he sort of mentored him. But it is, it's poignant and beautiful that Charles is kind of able to hopefully step up and, you know, he's he's driving for a Ferrari and doing brilliantly at it. So there is something, um, yeah, there's something lovely about that, isn't there? But yeah. I mean, take away from the, utter tragedy that is Jules Bianchi because he was just such a you know such a lovely guy and um, obviously a tremendous talent and I, I remember having Daniel Ricciardo on this podcast and we talked about Jules's death and how you know he thought it, it had affected him and the paddock as a whole and I'm interested to hear what you think but D Daniel was basically saying that you know, it was, a, it was a moment in time when everyone stopped and realised how much they genuinely cared about each other. That, you know, you kind of think you're all different and you're all fighting it out and you're really competitive. But actually, you're all very similar at the end of the day. You've got a very similar skill set. You come from similar backgrounds, but you've got a similar sort of outlook on life. And he said it was just a moment where we all just like looked at each other and thought we genuinely care about each other's well-being. And this is a moment that we need to come together. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with with that. And it's the thing which was weird for me is I never really got to see the aftermath of it because we had to go to Russia the following week, um, you know, and we didn't really know the full outcome. And I tried to stay away from it because I didn't really want to know, um, especially if I was racing that weekend. Mm -hmm. And the team were unbelievably down every time we went behind closed doors, the media girls were crying and it was it was emotional, but we didn't know the full outcome. So 
the best thing we could do was, was just get on and, and do the job. And I think one of the best things we did was not put a teammate in that car for that weekend. It was just a nice thing to have his car there. Um, the, the, the worst bit was our car broke down after about five laps in the race. So it was just a really down depressing um, weekend. And then, then the team uh, folded. So I never actually went back. I've never been back to a Formula One paddock since Russia 2014. So I never really experienced that bit, which Dan was talking about. But I completely understand that that's what he was feeling and what they probably went on to do in 2015 was sort of mourn him a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, the thing with Formula One is it's so competitive. Your teammate is, is your sort of arch nemesis. And I think in Formula One in recent years, that's become better, especially with like Lando and Carlos. They were arch rivals, but they did have a really good friendship between them. And I think that's improved since the, the, the days gone by. Um, and since racing in America, that's one thing that I've really, really stood out to me. The ranks of getting through to Formula One is so dog eat dog. You don't really have a great deal of time to become friends with the people around you. you in the odd case, you will, but they're not become really close. But in America, everyone's best friends. We all have to stay in our bus lots overnight. We all have barbecues, all the wives, the kids are there. And there's a really good feeling. And I've started to see that slowly come into Formula One recently where the drivers are getting on more. So that's good to hear that Dan Dan's saying that. Mm. That's a really interesting point because I think much is made of this new generation of young drivers coming through in F1. The likes of Lando, Charles, Alex. I mean, obviously Alex has lost his drive now, but George, they're all good pals. Um, and then, you know, some cynics will say, yeah, but, you know, if they're fighting it out for a championship, you know, then the gloves will be off and they won't be pals anymore. But I love this sense of camaraderie because I think it's really important because I think it can be a lonely place. You know, you're traveling the world, you're away from home for months and months on end. That it's good that you have got somebody to to turn to, albeit your your competitor. Um, OK, let's just just reflect then on, on leaving Formula One. Did, did you have that sense? Obviously, there was a huge amount of sadness around Jules, but did you also have a sense of unfinished business? Was there a sense of frustration in you because the team did go into an administration and suddenly you were without a seat? How did you kind of cope and process that? Um, you know what? 2014 was the, the, the hardest year for me because I, you remember my old fitness trainer, Sam Village, who went on to be Carlos's trainer and Dan Ricardo's trainer. He... I gave him his first job in Formula One. So he was my trainer for the two years and we, we were like best mates. And he he knew what I went through. But the 2013 off season, so leading up to 2014, Sam got me to, I think, one of the fittest drivers on the grid. We were super lean. We were training every day and I was in the right window. And as I said earlier, I started off the pre-season testing in the start of the year better than Jules did. And I think that was all because of the behind the scenes winter training. But I knew from the moment we were heading to Australia in 2014 that the team was absolutely on a knife edge. I didn't even think we were going to Australia. So I was treating every race up to the point of Russia as our last race. But I knew a lot of team, a lot of the team didn't have a clue. It was only the management that really knew what was going on. Jules didn't know um, probably until maybe Monaco time what was going on. So that was a very, a very difficult year. Um, so I was already treating every race like my last race. When we ended Russia and it was all game over, I sort of thought that probably is it. But there was also this sort of, I remember going on the F1 show with you and there was this sort of resurrection of maybe getting the car back to Abu Dhabi. Um, and my father was behind the scenes putting a lot of work into that. I don't think I've never seen him work so hard and he's always worked hard. And it's, it's the only time I've ever seen my dad cry actually was coming home from work in London 
going upstairs just exhausted in, in tears because it had all fallen through at the last moment. Um, so, you know, that was a really difficult year. But I'm quite a, I'm quite a, a blunt and honest guy. And I sort of, I knew from that moment on, I was probably never going to race in Formula One again, unless I became this new resurrected child in America and started winning every championship that every part, you know, so that every, every, everyone, every F1 team wanted me back. But, you know, that wasn't the case. So I sort of waved goodbye. And that's why I've just not been back to the paddock. It's just sort of, you know, it's too difficult. Um, and it? so it's, it's also too bloody difficult to get in the paddock. I've tried a couple of times at the British Grand Prix and it's like, no, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that. Well, it's, it's bloody hard now because of COVID, I'll tell you that much. It's yeah. a really, you know, I'm just grateful that we're racing, but it's a really weird place. It's, not, it's nothing like you remember it. Yeah. There's no hospitality. You can't just like nip into McLaren for a cup of tea. It's no. you know, you're in your bubble and you 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 go in, do your work, and leave. Um, do you think this year's going to be even harder for you guys though? Say again. Do you think this year's going to be even difficult, more difficult for you traveling? Because yeah. for me, I think yeah. last year we, me and Chloe, were traveling across the Atlantic on planes with forty people in because yeah. there was no one traveling. We didn't have to take any tests. We didn't have to quarantine hardly anything. This year, we're having to do tests to leave England and come back. Yeah. We're going to have to quarantine fully for 10 days. I just don't know how F1's going to work with coming back to the UK and then quarantining. They, they must have some sort of exemption. Well, we yeah, we do as an elite sport have an exemption because of the biosphere that's in place. But it's incredibly strict. And actually, I have to say, I'm really proud of the job that Formula One have done. Obviously, nothing to do with me. But, you know, looking at the sport... Um, you know, we have worked really, really hard to, there obviously was a handful of cases in the paddock, but in the main, they were able to contain those and keep the sport going, which, you know, very few sports have been able to do to the same level. Yes, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but, well, look, I'd like to have you back in the paddock. <laughs> you get fun. Right. I have to say here and now, and I know I've said this to your face many times, but you always just a joy to interview. Like Because however crap your weekend, and let's face it, you had some crap weekends, mm. you just came out smiling and you just said, you know, it is what it is. We learn, we grow, you know, you never sulked, you never complained. So thank you. <laughs> well, the problem is if, you, if, you, if you're down, it doesn't help anyone. And also in F1, there was so much press if you showed a weakness, they would absolutely jump in on it. So if, yeah. you, if you said, oh, no, it's all fine, there's not much they can really write about. If you're like, yeah, it was, you know, that was crap, I'm not happy with the car, then just, that's going to be the headline. So I was very well taught earlier on, early on in my sort of career, media-wise, to not show a weakness. Yeah. Okay, then let's talk about the move across the pond then. Um, how did it come about? Um, so it came about uh, Trevor Carlin that runs um, Carlin, uh, he said, we're going to start doing Indy Lights, which was the feeder series, basically the equivalent of GP2 or F2 now, um, to IndyCar. And I thought IndyCar was a potential for my career going forward. Um, now, I said for years, and this is one thing I've always learned. Could you try again? <laughs> is that Siri? Hello, Siri. It always freaks me out when Siri chips. Yeah. Somebody's chips. Chips in with a look. hang on a minute. You've been listening to everything. Oh, that's the first time that's ever done that. I, I always thought I'd mm. sit off. I don't like the thought of it. But anyway, um, so I've always said I would never do IndyCar, but I've learned now never say never because I've now going in this year going into my uh, sixth year in IndyCar. Um, 
But now the interesting thing with IndyCar is we all know a lot of people think it's just ovals. It's not, but there is ovals and they're very high speed, dangerous, completely one-offs kind of skill. Now I thought it was a bit too much of a jump to go from F1 straight into oval racing with no experience. So I thought actually, if I do Indy lights, I'll learn doing some of the ovals um, and I'll learn some of the tracks before I step up to IndyCar. And now I didn't do a full season because I was also works driver for Nissan in the Le Mans series. Um, so we did Le Mans that year. That was a whole waste of time, that whole project. We had a front wheel drive LMP1 car with a hybrid unit, which wasn't even connected, which weighed 80 kilos and it had skinny rear wheels and big front wheels. But anyway, that year was all a bit of a mess, but we did, I ended up winning a race in Indy Lights and it was on an oval. And Dario Franchitti was sort of my mentor at the time. And he, I wasn't enjoying the ovals, but he said, look, I hated ovals for three years, but I just, after a while, started doing well and started to learn and enjoy it. Sorry, can I just ask why you didn't like them? Uh, they're just bloody fast and scary and just so un-European. Like, I would love every F1 driver to experience a high-speed oval. It's, it's like nothing else. Um, and it takes a lot of getting used to. And because I'm on the sort of, I'm very like methodical and, and I try and think about everything, which actually on an over, you, try, you, need, you don't really want to kind of think about what could go wrong. You need to just do it. Yeah. Um, so it took a long while to get, uh, get, get around it. But I ended up winning a race that year. And actually it was the day that Jules passed away was the day that I got my victory, which is a whole bizarre thing in itself. Um, so towards the end of that year, I then signed up with Chip Ganassi, one of the, leading uh, teams in IndyCar and Dario was the driver coach there and so he he guided me through um, and actually my second year in IndyCar I led the Indy 500 for most of it more than anyone that day mm -hmm. I led it for 50 laps and I lost the lead with six laps to go and um, yeah it was uh, you know I nearly came close to winning the biggest race in the world but again it is what it is you can't change it oh. I remember it. I remember watching it thinking, no, hang on a minute. That's Max's name at the top there. What's get like this is incredible. And think, no, 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 don't get excited. I cannot imagine what it was like for you and Chloe at that time. So, so you led for 50 laps and with what six to go? Is that yes. right? Yeah, so it was a 200 lap race and I started the race awfully. I couldn't sit behind anyone in traffic. I just didn't have enough grip. Now it was the year Fernando came, left you know, Jensen filled his seat at Monaco Grand Prix. Everyone was at the end of the Monaco Grand Prix watching this because Fernando was doing it. Fernando was doing amazingly well leading. I remember Fernando lapping me. So I was a lap down to the leader after 30 odd laps. My teammate, Scott Dixon, had had the worst accident I've probably seen in my career up until Grosjean's, where he flipped, landed on his head and was fine. So I was in a behind Fernando in the pit lane in a red flag incident thinking right well, I'm 30 laps into a 200 lap race and I'm sort of already out of it anyway Scott was fine they cleared up the mess we got going again a bit of a lucky strategy call got myself back onto the lead lap and then we stayed out when everyone else pitted so I was then leading so I led for about 20 laps in the middle of the race and then we just timed it to perfection with like 40 laps to go um, to get back to the front. Now, my car was only quick because we didn't have any downforce on the car. Well, that only works if you've got no one in front of you. If you've got no dirty air, happy days. You keep your foot flat and just keep going. But if I, as soon as I got behind a car, I had no downforce. Anyway, we knew we didn't have enough fuel to get to the end by about three laps. So I was a part of me was like, oh, this is fun, but we're not going to make it. Anyway, there was a yellow flag with 20 laps or 15 laps to go. And we just saved enough fuel under the yellows, which... I got the message from my engineer saying, right, you're good to go to the end. So I was like, right, get a good jump. The sort of, you know, I was the guy 
leading off of the green, get a nice jump. And I carried on leading for another like six or seven laps, but I had a three-time Indy 500 winner, Elio Castroneves behind me and Takuma Sato, who was, should have won it in 2014, but, you know, spun out on the last lap. And they both desperately wanted to win it. And I made a slight mistake at one by doing a small lift. I started to understeer off as my tyres were going. And Elio just got around the outside of me. And I knew at that point with six laps to go, I was just going to have to hang on for dear life because my, and my car had no downforce behind someone. So I slowly, every couple of laps, lost a position and managed to hold on to fourth. But it was hindsight's an amazing thing because I now know, having raced for five years in IndyCar, if I know what I know now, I could have won that race just by small little adjustments, by blocking the white line. I was going to the white line, um, but the lap I understeered off, I should have moved my bars a couple of laps before, which would have helped my understeer. So I wouldn't have gone high. And if you go high, you then have to lift. And it was a little dump I did for like half a second, which affected my RPM down the back straight where Elio got past me. But now I know if you sense something's going wrong and adjust your bars before it happens. Um, It's a bit like when you run a marathon, they say you need to eat before you want to eat because if you're hungry, it's already too late. You're going to fall off a cliff. So I now know adjust everything before you need to need to. Um, but yes Um, but to say I've led the biggest race in the world come so close to leading it and finish fourth it's still an amazing achievement Um, it is great but I definitely want to try and win that race one day yeah god I mean it is it it is gripping I think it's culturally seems so different to European racing Uh, what what is it like when you I mean you talked about um, the fact that you've got the sense of togetherness and camaraderie there that you perhaps didn't have an F1, but, but what else, how else is it different? Um, The tracks are very different. So obviously Formula One tracks, a lot of them, you've got the old school ones like Spa and Suzuka, but they're slowly being adapted to tarmac runoffs and slightly more modernization. Um, But the American circuits are just old school. They are fast, hilly, blind, and the white line is the edge of the track. If you go off, you're putting wheels in the grass, and you're probably going to have a big one. So it's a lot more on edge, but it makes it a lot more exciting. Um, the cars are also a lot closer. Um, and it's also unbelievably competitive. It's a bit like Formula E. I think Formula E is really competitive. You've got a lot of these people that have either been to F1 or just never had the chance. So there's still a lot of drivers outside of F1 who are an amazing uh, skill and talent. And I think IndyCar is full of that. And because we're all in the same car, it makes it really tight, close racing. Um, but again, as I said, we're, we have this amazing tight, close racing, but we're pretty much all friends. Everyone hangs out in the bus lot. At the end of the day, we're in the Midwest after time, middle of nowhere. The nicest hotel in the area is your motorhome. So everyone just stays in the motorhome. They love grilling out there. Some guys will cook one night and, you know, your wife might cook the next. And it's just amazing. What about you? <laughs> I, ne- I don't cook. I've been with her for 12 years and I've cooked for her three times and burnt myself twice. It's not my, my thing. Talking of which, I want to bring Chloe into this. Is she okay. there? She's over. She's walking over from painting. Here she is. Woo! Oh, it's so nice to see you. You, you, t- you touched on it earlier. You are childhood sweethearts in... The most incredible way. So you met when you were four and you were six, Max. Is that right? Yeah, I was. I was the older one. Um, so yeah, it was a, a moment I'll never forget. The weirdest thing about that is I went. It was actually at her father's art gallery, um, 
And I remember my parents used to buy art from her dad and we used to go on a Saturday to sort of look around it. And Chloe's dad would take her into work on a Saturday to, you know, just as she wasn't at school. And I remember this really pretty little blonde girl with a ponytail sat on her desk, on her dad's desk. And um, I remember putting this, I put this in my groom speech at my wedding, didn't I? Because I remember saying to her, her dad, or was it my dad? I said, why are these pictures so big, so expensive when they're so small? And she piped up at the age of four and said, it's not about the size, it's about the quality. <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah, so uh, Max said he had to remind me of that <laughs> later or whatever. Yeah, when she started dating me, to remind her. It's mantra for life. Yeah. It's not about the Still size, is it? it? It's not Still about the size. About... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, um, oh, Chloe, it's lo- it's lovely to see you again. How's it been being um, traveling around with Max and immersing yourself in American culture? You know what? It's actually it's been really lovely. Like I can't believe really how long we've been been doing it for. I can't believe you said it was six six. This six is your sixth yeah. year. I mean, I like to think in my head I'm still twenty one. Uh, clearly not, but yeah, it's been it's. It's been really, really lovely. I met so many lovely friends and, and things like that. So we really enjoy America. Like America, everyone that goes to America has fun. Um, but we just never wanted to live there. We love the UK and it, yeah. we're very much like home is where the heart is. And I could never move my heart is is in Rygate in Surrey. We just keep trying to drag our uh, American American friends home with us. Yeah. Oh, that's right. But listen, tell us a bit about your passions and career because um Few people may know this, but you are a, an extraordinary artist. And oh. listen, I, no, honestly, I am blown away by your clouds. Thank you, darling. and your and your animals, your oh. dogs. You are just an incredible artist. So this is obviously something that runs in the family because you talked about your dad having a gallery. Yeah, so my dad, my dad uh, had a gallery, but uh, he was more like the business side of things, all antique art. My mum's the creative one. And just, yeah, I was so lucky growing up. Like My parents really encouraged me to 
you know, do what I loved rather than saying, oh, you have to do this and you have to be academic and things. And I, and I wasn't particularly academic. I Neither was really dyslexic. Me. Yeah, we, we're both like quite, we're quite dyslexic. Lucky in the fact that our parents both encouraged us to do something that we were good at. Um, so yeah, always, always just loved my art. I've always been a bit of a dreamer. So um, yeah, always, and, and it like, I can now take the art with me when I go away with Max. Yeah. So I get to do the best of both worlds, really. She actually just, she doesn't believe in herself enough though, because she's got more talent than I have. She's unbelievable. She doesn't realize how good she is. Um, so yeah, no, I've, I've definitely, Thanks, definitely darling. witnessed that. And going back to our, um, we're both dyslexic and we do laugh sometimes because you've probably had it as well. I, I don't know if you're great at spelling, but when, when you put something in your phone and your phone doesn't know what you're trying to spell, everyone reverts to Google. Then when Google doesn't know, you're really up shit creek. So we look at each other and she doesn't know, I don't know. And we're like, where do we go from here? Who do we oh. ask? Listen, <laughs> we're trying to homeschool at the moment. So can you imagine? Wiggy's actually dyslexic. I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm quite strong on the spelling front. Um, English was always my subject at school, but he is like, looks at me and Wilf said, okay, let, let's all do maths together. So Wilf is six, as you know, and he said, let's all do maths together. Mummy, you create questions for me. Uh, start with Willow and then get harder for me, get really hard for daddy. And you can see Wiggy look at me going, no, 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 no. <laughs> don't show me up in front of the kids because it's bloody hard but listen I mean you followed your passion you followed your dream you tell people listening um how they can look at your art because it is so worth looking at in you know commissioning but oh. it, you, you are extraordinarily ta talented I'm not just saying it I'm you know you, you kind of went I remember when Max first told me about your art I thought oh god am I gonna have to just be polite here and then I was like my god God, she's incredible. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank tell, tell us where they can find your art. Well, I have a website which Max built for me, you know, yeah. a man of many talents, <laughs> um, which is Chloe Chilton Art. Well, your website? Yeah. No, ChloeChilton.com. ChloeChilton.com. <laughs> I don't even know the name of my own website. I mean, I've, I've got technical. I couldn't have made it any easier. I've got technical support over there. ChloeChilton.com. There you go. Bosh. Or on my Instagram, <laughs> which is Chloe Chilton Art. That's where I get confused because okay. on my Instagram. Um, I'm not tech savvy, guys. Uh, <laughs> if I was to homeschool, it would be difficult, but I've never been so smug that we don't have children at the moment because homeschooling would not be one for me. What about the knitting? Are you still knitting? I haven't knitted in a in a long, long while. You used to knit in the F1 paddock, uh, Yeah, you? it was a... Yeah, I don't remember it. Mm, yeah, it was a... I've, I've got to be... I'm not a... I'm not a sitter. I have to. I'm a doer. We, yeah. So I've got to always be doing something. And the knitting has now reverted to painting slash cooking we've got a photo somewhere alexander rossi was our reserve driver at Mauritius. um all of 20 was that 13 or 14 i think it was 14, uh, 14 actually yeah 14. and there's a photo those lovely light houses out the back of abu dhabi uh, f1 paddock where all the teams are based i was out on track she's on the top of the sort of terrace with rossi just chatting whilst knitting a handbag <laughs> dressed as a beautiful lady it was a very bizarre thing which probably would what never happen again at Abu Dhabi. I know, you're, you're like uber glamorous and then you you sit like a little old granny knitting scarf <laughs> a little, little old lady to be honest max and i have both said we were never teenagers or really young adults in any way we were we were born old 
both of us. Yeah. So. I do I do know what you mean. Knowing you as I do, I can see that. You are old beyond your years. Yeah. And um Max, just looking at the F1 paddock now and and um what would you make of it all? You mentioned Roman Grosjean's accident um towards the end of the year. Obviously, a lot's gone on in 2020, but what are your thoughts on the talent coming through and what you've seen so far? What what would be your sort of takeaway moments of 2020? Um, 2020, I thought. You know, the thing that I love about F1 at the moment is the social side of things, the social media side of things with the, the voice and the radio comms. I think it's absolutely brought Formula One alive from from not being in the paddock now. I feel like I can see what's going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. and it really brings all the drivers and the teams and the engineers alive because you can actually see what you, you can hear from people's voices, what's going on. And I thought that's been brilliant. Um, there was some great standout results. I thought it was great, you know, having a Tour Rosso win a race. Um, I thought Lando getting a podium in Austria was an amazing, that whole last lap was trying to get Lewis and he did by a couple of tenths was just, that was an amazing moment. Um, I just think it's, it's starting to, I know Mercedes are winning year on year, but I think it's weirdly a little bit more mixed. Um, and so I think that's, that's a good thing. And, and there also seems to be a bit more driver changes each year. Um, I think it's slightly odd that maybe Fernando's back again. It would be nice to have probably a young driver in. Um, but that's that's just the way it is. Sometimes great to come back. Lance Armstrong came back. You've got to give them all another chance. So, yeah, look what happened there. Um, yeah. But so <laughs> we watched that documentary last yeah, night. That's, that's why I just pulled it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an unbelievable documentary, isn't it? Um, and do you miss it? Do you both miss it? Yeah. I mean, it's a no from me. Um, not not that I don't. I honestly feel like it was almost another lifetime ago. It did feel like another life. Like it, it feels all of the seven years and more. Um, yeah. I find it odd now watching a Formula One race, knowing that I actually competed mm. in F1 race. I don't, it doesn't feel like me. Um, so I don't know if that's life and going forward every seven years, you feel like a new person, but it does feel like a different life. Yeah. Um, I would love to meet up and just say hi to a lot of the people in the paddock, which you just don't ever see mm. apart from being in the paddock. So I'd love to come back. But do I miss the racing side of things? No, I prefer IndyCar. It's a lot more fair. It's a lot more open. The drivers are really, there's a really good, like friendly feeling yeah. in the paddock. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I miss seeing your lovely face in the paddock. Yeah, all we, those, we miss you now. All those lovely uh, people. And Ted's notebook. Yeah, that's not going anywhere. Don't worry, you can still get that. Um, do you Do you think it's more of a level playing field then in IndyCar? Do you think in terms of just raw competition, it's more compelling. Yeah, it's, um, you know, in Formula 1, you'd probably put your bet on Lewis every race to win and there's probably a good chance you get it right. In IndyCar, you'd never bet on someone. You know, Scott Dixon's won say. it six times. <laughs> he, still, he just still doesn't win every race. He might win two or three races in the year. It's still very mixed. And you can be, you can get on the podium one weekend and finish 16th the next. It's very up and down because it's so competitive. Mm. Um, and I think, I think there's rumours Grosjean's coming over this year. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. But if he does, then that will be really interesting to see how he gets on. You know, Marcus has come over um, and started doing it. Kevin might, I don't know, see what this year takes. Kevin's there at the moment, isn't he? Kevin's in the States now. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's not easy. And it's nice to see some people come over. Hopefully we'll get some more F1 drivers come over and at least, you know, attempt it and do the ovals and stuff. And then, go on, sorry, Chloe. No, I'm just going to say, I think one of the other things that's really nice is like the connection to the fans. Like 
pretty much like a, a, a fairly cheap ticket will get you into the paddock and like actually be able to see the drivers and like get autographs and pictures and things like that, doesn't it? Like yeah. it's very, very connected um, to the fans. And more accessible in a way that perhaps Formula One isn't, yeah. Much, yeah, yeah. In a way, is it is it is it nice when uh, when drivers come over because you you kind of get the recognition of what you've achieved over the last six or so years because, uh, you know they they do recognise that it's not easy. You know when Fernando came over, mm. everyone's thinking almost had he had he won it and and got that triple crown, then he would have been. Um, you know, it would almost have made it too easy. And I, I, de- I definitely noticed a lot of chatter on social media saying, look, there you go, it proved just how tough it is that even the great Fernando Alonso can't just waltz in and do it. Yeah, I think, um, I, yeah, I've already said something not overly great about Fernando, so I don't want to say another thing, but I think there was a lot of people that didn't want him to come over and win straight away because I think he's an amazing driver. I think he's absolutely incredible. But if he'd come over and won straight away first time out, mm. it would have undermined a lot of, of drivers that have been trying for years who are very good out here to win it. Mm. Um, so it was probably for the best that he didn't win, but I do think he's got, I do think he's got a skill for it. He's come back and, and shown that he's got it. So I think it's definitely the hardest one to win out of the lot of them because it's, it's more of a lottery. And so I think he's going to have to try a, a number of times to try and get that triple crown. But if there is anyone to do it, it's him. Well, yeah. when you think about Scott, Scott Dixon, who's done it for what, 20 years, done yeah. the Indy 520 times and won it once. And yet he's five-time IndyCar champion. Six-time IndyCar Six, champion. Sorry, Scott. Six-time IndyCar champion. Yeah. That, like that just shows how hard that race is and yeah. how, how much luck. You can be in the best well. car in IndyCar for their 500 and year and year you still won't win it. But if you're in the F, best F1 car in Monaco and Le Mans, there's a good chance you're going to win it. Yeah. And so that's the difference. And that's why it takes a lot more years to, to get, the, get the win. And in terms of the actual skill set that's required to win the three, that elusive triple crown, obviously Graham Hill's done it, but what is different about the application of those skills like in terms of what do you need for the Indy 500 that you perhaps don't in F1 and vice versa? Um, I think the skill set's very similar to honest. It's, it's all about getting your head around not racing 100% from lap one. The, the 500, it was all about the last 50 laps. And there's a lot of drivers that have, have lost the 500 in the, last, in the first 50 laps because they've taken themselves out of the race when they didn't need to. It only really comes alive in that last 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's being quite mentally, you know, controlling to bring yourself back, hold yourself back until the end. Um, and it's also about timing manoeuvres. It's so hard. If you want to overtake someone into turn one or turn three, which are the end of both straights, you've got to be timing that two laps in advance to get your run, to just get past them. It's such a, it looks so easy on TV, just follow them, overtake and go. But actually it's all about timing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's not overdriving. I guess it's being patient. And um, that's not, necessar- not necessarily a trait that all racers have. Just no. want to get out there and do a job. Yeah. Now, tell us finally, guys, how you have coped uh, with just an intense amount of time, the two of you. Because everyone wants to know, you are just the most gorgeous couple that never seem to argue. Do you ever argue? Everyone argues. Everyone argues. It's usually because I'm hungry or tired or she's tired and emotional. And it's usually about something. <laughs> so regularly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually about nothing as well. So we've learned 
We've been together for 12 years. We learned about six, seven years ago. As soon as we start bickering, we both go into separate rooms and just forget yeah. about it because it's, it's I, usually I about nothing. Bath, usually. You've been together 12, but you've known each other a lot longer. Yeah. 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 Um, so and I think also we have both, we both came from families where our parents had good marriages and respected each other. And so we learned that from watching them. Um, which is lucky, obviously. And I'd say lockdown has changed absolutely nothing for us because we spent 24-7 together anyway. So That's the thing we've always spent before lockdown. We're not, we're not spending any more time together than we were pre-COVID. Yeah, you're basically, your life is one long lockdown, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Basically. I mean, if Max goes out for like three hours, I'm like, after the first hour, I'm like, oh, I miss him a little bit. I don't really know where he's gone. Like... It, honestly, it is a tragedy. If he goes away for longer than a week, yeah. there's a, uh, yeah. I went away for a week, two weeks ago, and it was like we FaceTime three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> That's really sad, isn't it? No, nah, do you know what? I think it's lovely. I think it's lovely. I, d- I can't imagine there are many couples out there or anyone listening to this that can really relate to that, but I think it's gorgeous. Oh, I'm ready to throttle Wiggy right now. <laughs> no, no, no. It's been good, actually. I tell you what, the one really positive thing about lockdown is just having time, the four of us as a family, yeah. because you just don't get it. You, you lead such busy lives. And I think we do need to take a moment. And, and you know, you press the reset button and you do say, you know, we need to be grateful for the things that we took for granted before. Yeah, yeah totally. Definitely. Yeah, do, do your affirmations, Nats. That's it, that's it. And I tell you what, I will never take you two for granted again. Not oh. that I ever did anyway. I'm very grateful for you and your time and everything. Thank oh, you thank so much. We're really us. grateful, yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Bringing and us we on. still owe you, you and Wiggy a Sunday roast round at ours. You, you two had an amazing Sunday roast a couple yeah. of years ago for us. And we've, well, uh, it, which, by the way, is no mean feat. As a vegetarian, being able to cook a Sunday roast, it was a miracle that you actually were able to eat that. It was. And we, we had fish, I think, which was... Oh, did, oh right, OK. Maybe that's... Maybe that's no, no, no. We had fish, you and I. The oh, boys, right. the boys had fish. And yeah. you did both. See, a woman of many talents you are. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Look after yourselves and loads of love. Thank you, Max Chilton. Great to hear from you. And I loved Chloe's little cameo too. I think it's always interesting to hear from someone who has been in Formula One and then steps back... So you get a sort of educated and experienced insight into the sport. So thank you for that, Max. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your company in recent weeks. And thank you for your feedback. Make sure you keep it coming. Let us know who else you want to hear from on In The Pink. Just post your suggestions on our Instagram page. And make sure you add the hashtag In The Pink on Twitter. And you could be in with a chance of winning some Bose goodies. I will let you know more about the competition as it goes on. But for now, thanks again. And I will see you again very soon with more great guests here on In The Pink. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 